Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. In this episode, Ella Manuel describes a charming old guidebook to Newfoundland full of information that the tourist and the sportsman of the day would need. In 1905, a London publisher brought out a Newfoundland guidebook edited by Daniel W. Prowse with contributions from some very distinguished gentlemen. I wish I could show you the utterly charming and slightly amusing illustrations and photographs. Botwood residents would be hard put to recognize the picture of Botwoodville, a sawmill, three rude shacks, and a cove full of floating logs. The St. John's Railway Station, however, looks pretty much as it did 50 years ago, and so does a festive picture of St. John's, except for the long skirts, peg-top trousers, and a streetcar. But the prize is a photograph of Lady Leighton fishing. She wields a rod at least 15 feet long and as thick as a small telegraph pole. She wears a white sailor hat, a midi blouse with white puffed sleeves, and a skirt that comes below the knee, billows out, and looks extremely wet. Judging from the bend in the pole, she has quite a sizable salmon on. Actually, she caught and landed 15 salmon on the Grand Codroy that year, 1904, so we needn't be too superior about her fishing outfit. Not many of us could roll up that score in spite of our four-ounce fly rods and our waist-high waders. But enough of photographs. Let's see what was thought of us in 1905. Being a guidebook, and therefore addressed either to those who already meant to come to Newfoundland, or to those who might be persuaded to, this tale sets forth the best side of us, as of course do all such books. The best place for tourists' headquarters is said to be St. John's, which in 1905 was a busy, lively town with good streets, excellent shops, electric trams, water, gas, electricity, as well as an archbishop, a bishop, two cathedrals, a mayor, town council, and a big debt. There were golf links, courts and tennis clubs, and constant visits from English and French men-of-war to add gaiety to the capital. But it was sadly wanting in two of the great requisites of a modern city. It had neither a public library nor a first-rate modern hotel. Some of the things a visitor was urged to see in 1905, the Logie Bay and Torbay fishing villages, Petty Harbour and the Reed Company's electrical works, the whale factories at Cape Royal and Aquafort, and you could always bargain with a St. John's cabman for the trip. The cabmen, incidentally, were recommended as intelligent and pleasant companions. If you had time, you could tour the entire coast in one of Bowering's fine steamers. The fares were moderate, the table good, and every attention was paid to the guest's comfort. You could go from St. John's all around the south coast, Harbour Breton, Hermitage, Ramia, Rose Blanche, Portabasque, Bay St. George, into the Bay of Islands, and up to Bombay for $15. You could travel from St. John's to St. Anthony for $10, to Trinity for three fifty, and to Exploits for seven fifty. We learned that 
SS Home leaves Bay of Islands every Wednesday for Battle Harbor and return. Bay of Islands, of course, refers to Birchie Cove, which had just then been renamed in honor of the Reverend Joseph Curling. Cornerbrook had not then been settled at all. The guidebook also mentions the Clyde, the Dundee, the Ethy, the Argyle, and the Virginia Lake. Some of these ships I can myself remember, though they're all gone by now. At any rate, you could obviously get about the island of Newfoundland in 1905 fairly cheaply, provided you weren't in a hurry. But then you wouldn't without oceans of time visit this, quote, beautiful but maligned country, the new playground of America, the sanitarium of the weary brain workers of the old world, unquote. The book says, quote, as to the attractions of our island as a sporting country with its fine salmon and trout streams, the whole island is one vast deer park. Unquote. Caribou in those days were commonly called deer. For picturesque beauty, parts of the island are unrivaled. A great art critic told Prouse that the coastal scenery of Bay of Islands is unequaled in the New World, and I might add, except perhaps in Bombay. Mr. Prouse continues, The river valleys with their abundant greenery and limpid waters are delightful, even in its wide moors, home of the caribou and the willow grouse with their berry-bearing plants and their clear, health-giving air, having a wild, weird beauty all their own. Speaking of healthy air reminds me of the Reverend Philip Took. Among chapters in his Kaleidoscope Echoes of 1895 is one entitled Newfoundland as a Health Resort, a superb example of positive, even over-the-top thinking. Took writes, Newfoundland is admired by all who have ever resided there to be one of the healthiest countries in the world. There is an abundance of sunshine without excessive heat. The nights are cool and pleasant, nearly always requiring a good covering during the summer, and sleep is both restful and restores to the body a vigor and strength that is unknown in countries where the nights are hot and sultry. Miasmatic troubles are unknown, and it's a remarkable fact that horses here never contract heaves. Well, of course, it's true that Newfoundland does not produce the wines of France and Italy, the orange groves of Spain, Portugal, Florida, and California, the sugar and cocoa nuts of the West Indies, nor the costly silks and aromatic odors of China and India, but she is free of those dreadful agents of destruction, earthquakes, volcanoes, tornadoes, and cyclones. The poisonous breath of the hot sodok and the wet monsoon which spreads pestilence in the luxuriant countries of the east never reaches her. The hiss of the boa constrictor or of any snake or reptile has never been heard in Newfoundland. There is probably no other land superior to it as a health resort for the invalid suffering from almost any of the ills flesh is heir to. A thorough fine summer day in Newfoundland is simply unmatchable. Returning now to the guidebook, Prouse reports that visitors could buy a shooting license for $50, and they could fish for nothing. Decent shots and good heads could be found within a day's walk of the railway at Topsails, Patrick Marsh, or Howley stations. You could catch a fine basket of trout by almost any railway station, and if you wanted an out-of-the-ordinary expedition, you might go to Grandy's Brook near Burgio 
where Prouse himself once caught over 100 sea trout, 33 of them together tipping the scales at 122 pounds. Alas, many of the rivers recommended in 1905 are now fished out. Incidentally, I found our game and fishing laws of 1905 completely fascinating. One reads that you shouldn't kill or pursue with intent to kill any moose or elk until 1912. If you did, you'd be liable to a fine of $200 or three months in jail. Now, the moose I understand, for they'd just been introduced and needed time to multiply. But elk? That floored me. For despite the appearance of what is called elk on the Newfoundland and Labrador coat of arms, I didn't know we had any. As to caribou, you were allowed two stags and one doe per license, or three stags. If you were a native, the license fee was one dollar. For a foreigner, it was fifty dollars, except for officers of His Majesty's ships of war employed on the station for fisheries protection. They could go hunting for nothing. Incidentally, you were forbidden by law to kill a caribou with a machine, spear, tomahawk, or hatchet, nor could you spear salmon or trout. This little book also has quite a section on mining, lumbering, and fishing. Of our mineral wealth, Proust says, quote, Almost every known metallic substance of value is now found to exist within the country, and as it becomes still further explored, there's a strong possibility that the few remaining minerals will be added, unquote. When I was a youngster, I recall my father's friends arguing about mines and minerals in Newfoundland. Each one had a special interest in one mineral or one area, usually the one he'd been persuaded to put his money into. Well, Prouse is like that too, and his hobby horse is coal. Can't you hear in this sentence all the frustration of the world against governments and the general public? Krauss writes, quote, For some years past, I have been trying to hammer into the heads of my countrymen the vital importance of the development of our coal fields. I have told them the subject was more important than union with Canada or free trade with America. A borer has been feebly at work for two seasons, but it's always breaking down or the engineer is incapacitated or it begins when the season for work is nearly closed. Of course, the government is sincere in its attempt to explore the coal field, but it is not pushed with vigor or energy. The right place, of course, being about four miles from Codroy and eight from St. George's. And if we developed that, our financial position would be improved at least 50%. Proust goes on to say that a combination of coal merchants makes everyone, poor or rich, pay the most exorbitant prices for heat in their houses and the Standard Oil Company robs every man, woman, and child in North America of several cents on every gallon of oil used in their lamps. Selfish commercial interests stand in the way of developing our own petroleum and coal. And he hasn't the slightest doubt that in the future Newfoundland will be a great coal country. I must now share some of the odd bits in this book, the bits that add charm beyond the ordinary. Here is a denominational census return for 1901. It lists Church of England, Roman Catholics, Wesleyans, then others, and Labrador. Now, did that constitute a religion, or did the census machinery break down? But the bit that pleases me most came at the very end. The last item was a list of guides and their homes. 
Dan Allen McIsaac, Angus Allen McIsaac, John Isaac, Arch Gillis, Downey, Doyle, Youngs of St. George's, Shears, McCarthy, Hander of Gambo, Sanders of Glovertown, and then George Nichols, George Nichols Jr., and then suddenly, as if confronted with too tremendous a job, the author throws up his hands in despair of naming them all and ends his list with All the Nichols, Deer Lake, a fitting end to a delightful and informative guidebook to Newfoundland of yesteryear. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmore National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week to the first episode of Season 4, in which El Emanuel recalls four remarkable medics, missionaries and military men who came to help Newfoundland and its people in one way or another. 